The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to talk uh, this hour with um, an associate professor of uh, journalism, media, uh, marketing, communications, and uh, more, I suppose, at Northwestern University and the author of several books, including his latest, which is called Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis. His name is John Marshall. He joins me by phone. Good morning, John. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Um, John, when I first read about your book, Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis, First thing that went through my mind was the the famous old Richard Nixon quote about the media won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and and of course that was you know before Watergate. Right, right. He, he said that in uh, 1962 when he he ran unsuccessfully for governor of California. Uh, it was actually pretty revealing about Richard Nixon because throughout most of the campaign, he was heavily endorsed by uh, the Los Angeles Times, which was the big newspaper, of course, in the state of California. And they they even let him write a column and uh, got uh, throughout most of his career. Nixon got um, the majority of endorsements from newspapers. But yet he thought he was being picked on and that he was always being treated unfairly. Uh, he, was, he was rather paranoid about it. Uh, so when he lost the election for, for governor, he, he blamed the press, um, which, which he often did. And, and, he, and as, you, as you said, famously said, well, you won't have Dick Nixon to stick around anymore. Uh, but it's also revealing about Nixon is, is that he was very, very uh, stubborn uh, and uh, continued to be ambitious and uh, continued to have a whole lot of political skills. And six years later, he was elected president. Yeah, and it turned out the press did have him to kick around <laughs> again. Yeah, <laughs> a, lot, a lot more kicking what happened. Indeed. That's, that's true. Um, what is it about the relationship between um, the presidency and the media that um, that that is so attractive to you? Because you've written about it. This is not your first time. That's right. This is my uh, actually my second book. My first one was uh, Watergate's Legacy in the Press: The Investigative Impulse. Uh, so, two reasons I was especially interested in this topic. First, I was a working reporter for many, many years, uh, and I have a love of journalism. I, my, I come from a newspaper family, 
so very, very interested in the press uh, since I was a small child and a huge part of my career. Uh, and then I've always been interested uh, in presidents, or I shouldn't say always, not, not at birth, but by age five I was because um, summer of 1968, um, I grew up in Phoenix, and as you know, it's very hot there in the summer, so my family would always go to San Diego for a week to, to cool off. And the summer of 1968, my dad found out that none other than Richard Nixon was staying at a hotel down the beach from us right after winning the Republican nomination. And he thought it'd be a great idea for my older brother and me to go over and meet uh, Richard Nixon, the, the Republican presidential candidate. So we we walked probably a mile or so and, and stood out the hotel. And I can't remember what my dad said, but he shouted something over to Nixon when he came out of the hotel. And Nixon came over and, and very graciously shook our hands and said a few pleasant things. Uh, so from, from age five, I was, I was interested in Richard Nixon. Uh, and then when, when Watergate happened a, a few short years later, um, I was trying to figure out you know, what happened to this, this nice man who said hi to my brother and me, and then all of a sudden he's, <laughs> he's in, in, in big trouble. And my very first uh, article as a journalist in the, in the fifth grade uh, student newspaper was a, was a two-paragraph article about Watergate. So my, my interest in presidents and the, pres- <laughs> and the press goes way, way back. Well, I remember, uh, you know, even at um, I, I was going to community college at the time of the Watergate hearings, and I remember um, college kids being uh, um, just collected around TV sets uh, during mm-hmm. those hearings in the Student Activity Center. Um, they, they got a lot of attention in... Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Did. Yeah, I, I watched with my mom. Uh, she watched the Senate Watergate hearings the summer of 1973, and I would watch. And she tried to explain it to me how my my old friend Richard Nixon, my buddy from age five, was was in trouble and why. Uh, I, I think that's also it's it's interesting because um, what what you experienced and what I was experiencing with my mom <laughs> was a you know, phenomenon of of everyone. Everyone gathered around the, the TV set watching the same thing, watching the same news. Yeah. Uh, we really don't have that anymore. Uh, we're watching, everyone's watching something different or uh, getting something different on their social media streams. Uh, and so our sources of information are, are completely fragmented now, which I think is one reason uh, there is so much polarization in the country because we don't, we don't have a sort of common set of facts that, that people agree on. Yeah, I, I blame that on niche marketing. <laughs> I think, yeah, well. <laughs> as, as actually being sort of evolved from that, this idea that um, there were soccer moms out there and a radio station might play a certain kind of music to appeal to that audience, and then later it becomes maybe there's certain kinds of news that they might be more interested than other kinds. And, you know, it, it, it all kind of, anyway, that's just a, a little yeah, no, I theory think that I, I play think, with. I think that's part of the equation there, um, that, uh, you know, channels like Fox or, or MSNBC and, uh, on, on more liberal side, uh, realize they they can do better by having a really loyal audience uh that's very strongly connected to them and and watches them over and over again rather than uh having having a trying to have a broad appeal to 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 lots of different people uh and 
the other part of the equation, I think, is technology, which allows that to happen. Uh, when there were only three TV networks, uh, all of them were really trying to capture the same mass audience. Uh, there were two, two or three national news magazines, Time and Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report. They're all trying to appeal to basically the same audience in, in cities that had two newspapers. You know, maybe one tried to appeal a little bit more to one side of town or the other side of the town or a little bit more working class or, or professional class, uh, but still all of them trying to appeal to a mass audience. But when you have uh, thousands, if not you know, hundreds of thousands of podcasts and, and you know, cable news channels all over the place and, and, and millions of websites, uh, kind of the more niche you can get in, and the more uh, kind of vehement your audience is, it's generally the going to be more of a, a successful successful formula for them right now. Have you looked and 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 sort of analyzed the relationship and and the quality of the information exchange between pre-television news conferences and when the gaggle used to just sort of follow the president around. Um, I, and when I say follow him around, I, th I think sort of famously of uh, uh, Harry Truman's walks. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Tom. Uh, it, I think it really just depended a lot from, from president to president. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, for instance, uh, was great um, at... Uh, talking with uh, the White House press corps at the time was much was much smaller then, um, and he would he would invite them into his bathroom as he got his morning shave, and he would exchange uh, ideas and uh, policies with them uh, as as the barber was shaving him, and uh, he was very successful in getting promoting himself and and promoting his ideas that way. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was the first to hold actual press conferences and would have a hundred reporters in in the room at at a, at a time, but uh, he really disliked the press. He did not like reporters. Uh, thought they were too nosy. Thought they were rude. Uh, he thought he was smarter than everybody in the room too. Because he'd been president of Princeton and a professor for a long time, so he would just kind of lecture them and expect them to take notes and repeat exactly what he said, which, of course, they didn't do, and they asked questions that he didn't <laughs> like. Uh, and so, you know, Wilson you know, tried to innovate, but uh, because of his personality, it, it didn't work for him. Uh, so I think it, it really has kind of more to do with the, the president himself and, and also maybe who's part of the White House press corps at that point uh, than necessarily... Um, improving over time or, or, or getting worse over time. Has truth in, in media and media relations um, been basically eliminated since the creation of alternative facts and fake news? Wow, that's a big question. Has, has truth been eliminated? No, I, I, I don't think so. I think... Truth has to compete harder uh, than it ever did before to get out. There are certainly, but is it but is it outgunned with people, um, with the general public being so distrusting of media, of elected officials, of 
authorities of all kinds. Um, there's there's this this huge disconnect in terms of trust and and I just wonder if if truth can even fight its way through. Yeah, the public mistrust. I agree. It's 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 a major problem, uh, and it's one that's been building really kind of since the Watergate era. People began to distrust government a lot. You know, Vietnam War, obviously, too, uh, when when Lyndon Johnson and the generals were consistently lying. Yeah, I'm glad about Johnson didn't take the press corps into the bathroom with him. He, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, he, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Johnson was. Um, well, actually, he might have. Um, he's <laughs> That's a pretty true. crude guy, um, but uh, he didn't. He wasn't, have, uh, he wasn't in he, there to he, shave, he, is what he I'm had saying. a hard time adjusting to the television era. He was really kind of the last of those retail politicians uh, who. You know, rose to power by by shaking hands and doing the backroom deals and, and working with the party bosses uh, and kind of campaigning the old-fashioned way. And he he Johnson didn't translate very well to television. Nick, you know, Nixon did to some degree. He you know he was still a bit awkward and stiff, but he had a staff that that understood TV and would would kind of try to put him in the most did he make favorable sure positions when he go ahead when he became president? Did he um. Did did he make sure to surround himself with people who were good with TV because of the lessons learned running against Kennedy in 1960? Yeah, he definitely did. Uh, his his campaign manager in 1968, and then his chief of staff H.R. Haldeman, you know, came from the advertising business. Uh, he was a marketing guy. He didn't come out so much of uh, from the old kind of school po- political uh, scene. And Nixon hired a young. Uh, TV producer uh, Nixon had gone on the Mike Douglas show. Some of us remember an old old talk show in the sixties and seventies. Nixon gone on the show and uh, done okay, but not particularly great. And a young sort of assistant producer on the show came up to him afterwards and started giving him advice on how to be better on TV. Uh, and that assistant producer's name was Roger Ailes, uh, who became a TV consultant for Nixon, and then later on. Ronald Reagan and the first George Bush, and as, as you probably know, and, and I'm expecting many of your listeners to know, Roger Ailes came but came on to be the uh, first president of Fox News and, and the dominating figure for for Fox through through most of its its history. Uh, so, yeah, so Nixon definitely had people around him who were, who were very savvy towards television. My guest is John Marshall, author of Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis. Um, John, I have to take a short break here, and I want to talk about this some more because it's a fascinating subject to me, if you can't tell. Um, can you stick around for a little bit so we can talk some more? I absolutely can. Happy to talk with you for as, for as long as you can stand me. <laughs> well, be careful what you wish for, John. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, we can talk about this subject all day and night. <laughs> but we're going to give our uh, broadcast partners a chance to squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are uh, WFOV 92.1 LPFM in Flint. And... Um, if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be back with more about presidents and the press with author John Marshall Straight. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom General stuff? Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than a thousand dollars now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen. We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. 
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about presidents and the press in times of crisis uh, from a book uh, called Clash by author John Marshall, who joins me by phone. John, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, you're you're very welcome, and I just ordered some edible arrangements based on that last advertisement. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> uh, did you order them, or did you just get the gift card so you could pay your uh, I, I gave utilities? Them all, I gave them all my personal information over the phone, <laughs> and then I heard I wasn't supposed to do that. So Oops. <laughs> you'll see what happens. <laughs> oh, well, you'll have to come back and report on that uh, yeah. in, in the future, but... But let's, um, I want to get back to some of what we were talking about just before the break in the last segment. Um, we kind of wrapped up that segment talking about, um, we talked about the division and how some news outlets have an agenda of their own, um, a, a political alignment, if you will. And, and, um, and we were talking about the trust factor. Um, you mentioned something in the last segment that, that I wanted to, to start on, and that was this idea that um, televised hearings, going back to uh, the Army McCarthy hearings and, and Watergate hearings and more recently Senate confirmation hearings, and people gathered around the TV all getting the same information at the same time and how that's changed. Um, mm -hmm. How do we teach people, and I mean John Q. Public or Jane Q. Public, to, um, to vet the stories they're hearing so that they're not being influenced by fake news or Kelly Conway's alternative facts. Yeah, Tom, that's another that's another great question. Actually, my my last chapter in Clash, um, I give some recommendations of all, all sorts of things that I think could be done to improve on our current situation. And I do think uh, one of the things that I, I, I end with is that we need uh, more media literacy in our society. We we are we are swamped with media. In, in our daily lives, if you think about between radio and, and TV and, and, and print and, and, and now social media uh, and the web, uh, it's, you know, for some people, it's, it's constant, uh, 24 hours a day, media consumption. Uh, but yet we're not uh, trained uh, to, to think about how, how we consume it. Uh, and I, I think it's now become, a, in, in the 21st century, a, a, a basic skill that's as, as necessary as almost anything else we teach in schools. Well, it's uh, very we different. Should, we should teach trigonometry and, and, and teach media literacy, and people should understand uh, should understand how algorithms work on social media and how if you click on content that's coming from one side of the political equation, you're going to start getting a whole lot more content from that side of the political political equation and, 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 and not the other side, and how the most incendiary uh Types of statements are the ones that get uh, ranked the highest in social media feeds. Uh, people should understand how 
things can be taken out of context. Uh, short, short, you know, video clips of of a, of a few words from a from a president's speech doesn't always give the the whole picture of, of what happened. <laughs> I know, uh, right? And, when, um, when I when I first started seeing news coverage of um, what was happening in Ukraine in those first couple days when the Russians were um, moving troops into Ukraine. I went and rewatched Wag the Dog. Mm-hmm. Just, just as a mm-hmm. reminder to myself to not be so convinced of what I'm seeing. If yeah. that, if that I mean, makes sense yeah. to you, it was. It, it was, makes sense. It was um, kind of a reality check, but I don't think people realize that you know, in today's age with our mobile devices, we're getting you know, headline news and sports scores and weather reports sent to us, you know, every hour, you know, these things are popping up on our mobile devices. And in just a generation or two, most people learned about the Kennedy assassination by word of mouth. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Walter Cronkite and the other news anchors announced it on television. And it was on the radio. Uh, but but it, it spread, was your next door neighbor. Word of mouth. It was yeah. your next door neighbor who ended up telling you mm-hmm. the president's been killed. But then everyone turned on the TV or turned on the radio uh, and and pretty much watched or listened to the same thing. One one thing I talk about in the book is the. Um, Talk about the first uh, Trump impeachment hearings and trial, and I think that your know, mistake the, the Democrats made is they assumed it, w- it would be like Watergate, and that they sort of presented this sort of long but you know complex case, but lots of witnesses, and just kept adding the information one on top of the other piece of information that they would build this sort of complete picture of what of what happened. Uh, and that people would be absorbing that complete picture because they would be watching all the way through or reading long news articles about it. They were, they were doing the, the strategy that worked in Watergate. And I think that the Republicans were much more aware of, we just need some quick sound bites, something that would make for a good 10 to 15 second video clip to show on Fox uh, or to post on, on Breitbart or to, to push out through social media uh, that would raise all sorts of doubts about the, the wisdom of the impeachment and, and push uh, for President Trump's innocence and, and try to make the Democrats look ridiculous. Uh, so the, the Republicans were playing a, a different game, uh, which I think was much more fitted towards our sort of instant kind of global communications, personalized communication era media that we've got going now. Are there... Um some news sources that are more credible than others? And, and I'm thinking primarily in the United States, because usually when I ask pros that question, um, two of the sources I get back are the BBC and Al Jazeera, <laughs> 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 that, that are basically pretty good and pretty credible in what they report. I, I think, that's why I've looked at the BBC more lately than I have Al Jazeera, but from looking at Al Jazeera a few years ago, I, I would I would put them in that camp. 
Um, can't speak so much about them today. Uh, but I, mean, I, I, can, I can name some specific places uh, I would recommend, and, and I'll, I'll, I can do that. But um, I think it's more like what, what, what should people look for? Um, if, if a story is starting out with um, lots of adjectives, lots of uh, accusations, uh, saying things that almost sound too good to be true, uh, there's a good chance that it's it's really just a partisan site. Uh, like, you know, you won't believe this, this terrible, awful thing. Um, and there, and there, there's a big wind-up before you get to any actual kind of pieces of information. And then if there's not information that you can double-check yourself if you want to, uh, and if it's not asking different people with different perspectives to analyze that information, it's probably something you should trust less as yeah, well. I, um, I always get a little uncomfortable when I see credible news sources or historically credible news sources uh, like New York Times, CNN, um, when they talk about stories uh, surrounding the 2020 election um, or that make reference to Trump and his followers and their reaction to the 2020 election that their, um, when they use the phrase false claims or false allegations, that, that always troubles me a little bit, that the writer or the editor is, is making that determination. That's interesting. It does, um, yeah, I look at it differently. Uh, I, I think if a reporter through their research and trying to verify the information has found out that a claim is false, uh, they should say that rather than just, than just give the claim uh, without giving the context, especially one that's, that's been, you know, that's repeated over and over again um, and has been fact-checked, but the politician keeps making the same claim. Uh, I, I think uh We've, we've seen politicians, um, you know, President Trump would be one. He's not the only one. Well, I, but I, uh, but who, I see who, who repeatedly him... say false things. And I, I think it, it needs, it needs, it, if, if you, it, as a reporter, I'm not saying it shouldn't, it shouldn't be reported, but it shouldn't be reported as, um, as assumed fact when they say, you know, and a lot of times people will say, former President Trump's false allegations or his lies about the 2020 election. And unless they say allegations that have proven to be false or, mm -hmm. you know, put it in, in some context where the, the reporter isn't just assuming something is fact. Well, they should link, uh, you know, link to yeah. what the actual evidence is, uh, which is one one advantage we have today. I know, you know, I and others will bemoan some of the problems of our of our sort of instant global communication era, uh, digital media era, which does have problems. But one, you know, one of the great things is it's very easy to to show people now what what your evidence is through through links to data sets or, or links to, you know, video where someone has said something completely different or, you know, or whatever it is. It's, it's very much easier now 
to show your research, to show your evidence as a reporter. You know, I can't remember if it was um, at at a uh, an Alfred uh, Smith dinner or or if it was a White House press corps dinner. I think it was the press corps dinner. Um, in fact, I think it was uh, Barack Obama's last one. And in it, he thanked the media. Um, well, he didn't thank them, but he gave them credit. He thanked them sarcastically for creating Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was uh, was kind of an interesting, um, an interesting thing because how do you how do you compete when you have a media sensation? in the race and and paid advertising can't keep up with the with the free coverage yeah that's another great question tom and and there's studies that show that trump received something like a, a billion dollars worth of free media attention primarily on cable uh when he was running because it was such a spectacle uh and he was a candidate like no other had been um and you know whatever you think about him the you know his his rallies and his speeches uh, were, were were kind of entertaining and wild. Well, and, and and, you, like, you just, they you were. You didn't know what to expect. And, and, and the I cameras it, would be on him all the time. I thought and he got much, was, more, much more time than the other candidates. I thought it was interesting that it was Barack Obama pointing that out because Barack Obama did very much the same thing. You know, he was such an interesting candidate, being the first black candidate mm-hmm. with a real shot at the White House. His his events were drawing huge crowds and were worthy of coverage. So he got a lot of coverage, and, and he gave a lot of well-timed, well-planned speeches. And um, so he, he managed, plus he was, uh, you know, the first candidate for president to effectively use... Um, Social media, right, right. Uh, yeah, the, the, the Obama White House was the first to really master social media, and he he got his message out that way. Uh, was a way to get around the White House press corps. You know, I think part of what Obama was referring to there was the fact that Trump was able to use the mainstream media as well as um, conservative media to to push the idea that. Uh, of the birther conspiracy theory that, that Barack Obama had not really been born in the United States. Uh, and, and Trump very successfully for him, at least, uh, you know, went on all the kind of morning talk shows, not just Fox, but, but, uh, the other channels and would promote these, these insinuations and questions that, that Obama wasn't really, uh, a U.S. citizen, which was totally untrue. <laughs> Obama had the had the birth certificate and and uh, you know, the Honolulu newspaper had a birth announcement for him when he was born, um, but Trump got away with it, uh, and uh, the press didn't call him on that. Uh, they just kind of let him keep repeating this conspiracy theory, uh, and uh, Trump rode that to, to to prominence in in the Republican Party, and I think it it, it helped him when he ran for president in 2016. Trump seems to be an exception to this, but to what degree does having a sense of humor win over 
the media? Well, I think it helps. And I'm thinking a great of, deal. You know, I'm thinking of John Kennedy, who was very clever, very witty. I'm thinking of Ronald Reagan, who always had a fun story or joke to share with the press corps. Um, you know, and uh, um, Reagan's you know famous debate line about Fritz Mondale's youth and inexperience. Mm-hmm. Um, it, those kinds of things do a lot to soften the media, I think. Yeah. At least that's my perception of it. Is is it no, I think is that true? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I do talk about this in Clash. Uh, the presidents who get along with reporters and the press, by and large, um, are the ones uh, who naturally, you know, probably get better press coverage. Uh, and... Then they say journalists write the first rough draft of history. Uh, that first rough draft of history starts to influence the the final drafts of history. And whenever historians get together and rank the best presidents to the worst presidents, uh, many of the ones near the top are the ones who enjoyed those good kind of relationships. You mentioned Reagan. He's uh, often listed towards the top. John F. Kennedy. Uh, Abraham Lincoln had a real sense of humor. Uh, and, you know, his press corps was much smaller then, uh, but he had. Uh, you would have long conversations with the reporters. One of my uh, one of my favorite uh, encounters, uh, as reported by a biographer, um, and I wish I could think of her name because she's done some great presidential biographies. But there's um, a report that uh, Lincoln had changed his position. He he had felt a certain way about an issue and then a year later he had completely changed his perspective on that issue and a reporter called him on it basically accusing him of Mm flip-flopping and Lincoln's response was I like to think I'm a little smarter today than I was yesterday (laughs) and you know if John Kerry Had had boned up on his Lincoln history a little bit, mm-hmm. could have saved himself a he lot. Could have, of you could have had a much better line. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're right. Uh, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, was another one uh, who would joke around with the reporters. Was very accessible. Uh, they would have uh, reporters over for for Sunday dinner. Uh, <clears throat> Eleanor would make omelets, uh, or Roosevelt would have them over for a cocktail. They created a, a White House playground where reporters' children could play. Uh, so they were very kind of smart about kind of developing these friendly relationships. And I don't know, at least with the, the working reporters, FDR tended to have a really good relationship with them. And he's, he's another one of those presidents who's usually ranked towards the top. And then, you know, in contrast, you have uh, uh, Herbert Hoover, who, who was very cantankerous towards the press, uh, Richard Nixon, <laughs> Did not enjoy a, a cordial relationship with the most of the White House press corps, and, and there's there's others who are, aren't usually remembered as fondly by history who who didn't uh, develop. You know, and I talked about Woodrow Wilson earlier. Uh, his his kind of chilly relationship with the press didn't help him at all either. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right, Tom, about that. And I think Johnson too. Oh, uh, Lyndon, Lyndon or Andrew? No, Lyndon. Talking about Lyndon. Lyndon, yeah. Um, he, uh, 
he was always kind of doing a power game with with reporters uh and he would uh he would be friendly when he wanted to and then he would be quite uh angry and intimidating when he wanted to and that that kind of worked for a while but then when his his back was kind of against the wall with with Vietnam uh there wasn't a whole lot of uh, uh, uh grace among uh, those those reporters uh you know they're human beings too and if someone's been kind of tough and nasty with you you're you're less likely to give them kind of any leeway or or, or wiggle room uh when when the going gets tough so i i think that came back to to Hanlon and Johnson well i think we could do a lot to understand history better um, by looking at these relationships, John, as you have done in the book Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis. Um, it's uh, it's a fascinating subject, and I, can't, I just can't believe how fast the time has gone. What's next for you, John? What's next for me is uh, I've worked on this book for about... Uh, golly five or six years now so i'm going to take a little bit of a break uh although i am doing a working on a research project looking at uh talk radio and what democrats tried to do in the 1990s to catch up with uh republicans who who were much more effective on 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 on, on talk radio in, in that era and uh, why the efforts of the Democrats in the 90s didn't gain a whole lot of ground. So that's that's my next research area. Well, they had a tough time competing with what I call rant radio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, <laughs> this is something I actually I do talk about in, in class. Is, uh, Ronald Reagan did away with the Fairness Doctrine in 1987. And as you, I'm sure, know, the Fairness Doctrine required that if you had one side of the political debate on your show, you had to give some effort at, at equal time to the other side. And Reagan did away with that, and, and uh, Republicans kind of pounced on it. Uh, and Rush Limbaugh went national, and then all sorts of Rush Limbaugh imitators went national. And uh, they they understood uh, how to get big audiences through exactly what you said, the, the, the rants and the, and the uh, being in, as incendiary as possible. Uh, kind of gets back to what we were talking about at the start of the show about how trying to appeal to a, a very loyal uh, audience that, that feels strongly about something is, is kind of the, the formula now, and, and they John, understood that. John, we've got to end it uh, here. John Marshall, author of Clash, Presidents, and the Press in Times of Crisis, but I always like to give guests an opportunity to share with listeners where they might find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you could share? Um, I sure do, Tom. It's um, it's johnmarshall.com, but the trick is my first name is spelled J-O-N. I'm not one of those J-O-H-N, Johns. I'm, it's J-O-N, Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L.com. And you can learn about both of my books there. You can leave a comment for me, and I'll get back to you. And uh, I've got all sorts of other things I've written and articles and so forth on there as well. So would love it if, if your listeners visited. Well, John, thank you so much, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me on the show. Take totally care. enjoyed it. Take care. Bye. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with more straight ahead. <laughs> 
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice. Vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage, basketball or soccer. So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hey, why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, these days, price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual. But when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time. But when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop Attorney General and we got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nessel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at Michigan 
gov slash ag put those away we're at a gas station this is u.s senator gary peters and you're listening to the tom sumner program welcome to this presentation of the comedy spotlight on the tom sumner program It's 9 o'clock in Denver. It's 10 o'clock in Chicago. In Baltimore, it's 6.42. (laughs) Time for the 11 o'clock report. First of all, the headlines. Welcome Wagon runs over newcomer. Good humor man slays 10. Pen pal stabs pal with pen. Pediatrician dies of childhood disease. And Jacques Cousteau drowns in bathtub accident. We'll be back with full details in just a moment after this word from Cooley's Cigarettes. You know something, Bill? These cigarettes of mine, it tastes like crap. <laughs> Say, Dan. <laughs> Crappy taste. Why don't you try the cool, refreshing taste of Coolies? Coolies, eh? You smoke them? Nope, found them in the subway toilet. (laughs) And now back to the news. History's 135th heart transplant operation was performed yesterday in New York City. One unusual note, the heart transplant took place in Central Park at midnight, and the donor's family was not consulted. (laughs) Dr. Timothy Leary's brother, really Leary, Today announced the formation of a new religion, which teaches that when you die, your soul goes to a garage in Buffalo. (laughs) Police today arrested Margaret Fulcrum, a 45-year-old unregistered nurse, and charged her with accepting collect obscene telephone calls. Famed television announcer Charlie the Tuna was found dead today of mercury poisoning. (laughs) Sorry, Charlie. Good news from the Far East. No one was killed in Vietnam today. However, three people died of old age at the Paris Peace Talks. (laughs) And former French President Charles de Gaulle rose from the dead today just to show everyone he could really do it. Well, that's it from the news desk for the latest in sports. Here's Biff Barf. Good evening, sport fans. Biff Barf here in the Biff Barf Sportlight Spotlight, picking them up and barfing them right back at you. I call them the way I see them, and if I don't see them, I make them up. No games today. However, we do have a few late football scores still coming in from the far west. Guam Prep, 45. Marshall Islands, 14. Mindanao A&M, 27. Molokai, 10. Caltech, 14.5. MIT, three to the fourth power. 
William and Mary, six. Nick and Tony, 105. And here's a partial score, Stanford, 29. Well, that's it, kids. That's it from the scoreboard in the world of golf today in the Fats Domino Desert Classic. First round leader, Willie Waterhazard, had a birdie, two eagles, and a duck this afternoon. Meanwhile, the favorite Gary Fairway was way behind, scoring a record 609 strokes on the front nine when he accidentally stepped aboard a bus to Minneapolis while playing a difficult lie from the highway. Well, that's it, sport fans. Join me tomorrow afternoon on the ever-widening world of sports when I'll be presenting the national two-man pall-bearing championships. And next week, I'll be a guest hunter on American Sportsman. Six of us are going to kill a rabbit. The latest in weather, here's Al Sleet, your hippy dippy weatherman. Hey, 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 what you call your possum? Al Sleet, hey, hippy dippy weatherman, brought to you by Parsons Pest Control. Do you have termites, water bugs, and roaches? Parsons will get rid of the termites and water bugs and help you smoke the roaches. <laughs> Present temperature is 68 degrees at the airport, which is stupid because I don't know anyone who lives at the airport. <laughs> Downtown, it's much hotter. Downtown's on fire, man. Now, if you'll take a look at our national weather map, you'll see that we don't have one. So try to picture last night's map in your mind. Remember all those lines and numbers. Weather was dominated by a large Canadian low, which is not to be confused with a Mexican high. Tonight's forecast, dark. Continued mostly dark tonight. Turning to widely scattered light in the morning. That's it from Al Sleet. Don't forget, if you don't like the weather, move. Thanks, Al. Always a great report from Al Sleet. I think we all know by now, Al's been into the mushrooms. <laughs> Well, that just about wraps it up on the 7 o'clock report. Join us again tomorrow night at 9 for the 11 o'clock news. In the meantime, stay tuned for a brand new comedy series, Double Trouble, the story of Siamese twins joined at the lips. And the merry mix-ups that occur when one gets married and the other has root canal work the same day. Good night, all. This was another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Well, I just had to 
Program.com. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 